Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. This is KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Andy Zoden. Our team is comprised of the great Matt Lander, former world number one, seven-time major champion, Johnny Levine, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American. He'll be joining us a little bit later. And Matt, we're going to be joined shortly by Fernando Segal from Argentina. But before we are, you know, you and I have been involved in a lot of tennis pro conferences, and you have actually been sort of for the last year and a half or two years, living a little bit in my world, in and amongst all of the the sort of career teaching pros. But now this conference takes us back into your world because these are the guys that have really been there and done that. This is a compilation of Grand Slam champions and or coaches of Grand Slam champions like yourself. And with that, I do want to introduce the founder and the director of the World Tennis Conference, Fernando Segal. Fernando, congratulations on this undertaking. 58 speakers, many of them household names in our sport. Talk about the evolution of this idea and how you brought this to fruition. Uh, First of all, thank you very much, Matt and Andy. It's a pleasure to be with you and to be at your show. Uh, Well, let me me tell you that uh, there is an organization, which is the GPTCA, they have the GPTCA have uh, for since 10 years ago uh, an agreement with the ATP to develop and certify high performance coaches. I used to say the, the science, you know, structure of tennis, you know, which is behind the coach and behind the player. And I always prefer to coach the coaches. With that idea, we create the World Tennis Conference with four different purposes bring the top guys you know, closest to the normal coaches, let's say, which are around the globe. Secondly, create innovation on the ways and to put uh, levels of management and communication in the same level of, we used to say, quality of product. Uh, And also we create a program covering four different blocks, which is sport science, human transformation, story of uh, like a coach and tactics and and technique. So, Andy, I've actually been kind of involved and I've I've heard of this organization uh, come alive about six, seven years ago. I think what I realized through this is that tennis coaches in general are not at the same level that they should be. Compare tennis coaches to the players that are world famous and are making a lot of money and tennis coaches that are following them, professional coaches. Uh, they, they often they don't even have a contract with a the player. They can get they can be let go straight away. And if you compare that to let's say this the swing coaches on the PGA golf tour, I, I think their standing inside their own sport was higher and more thought of. Tennis coaches, I mean, it's 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 a thankless job. And Fernando, I love it what you're doing. I think that we somehow need to create more respect for the tennis coaches, whether they are the high performer 
coaches or if they are at the very top level of professional game. I don't think it matters. Uh, you are absolutely right, Mats. There are only three countries that you, like a tennis coach, are protected by law. And clubs can hire only certified coaches. There are only three. And, the, and, and around the globe, we have 200 uh, countries, you know. And that's a, this is a problem. We need to improve our sport. We need to have, like you say, contract for coaches around. We have to create, you know, protection. They don't have health care. They don't have protection when they are old. The opportunities, like you mentioned, Matt, are so big that we have to work on that. Andy, I'm, I mean, I like to say what I think about, about coaching. Obviously, it's starting to happen that players are okay with, with working with a coach that worked with a, a, a competitor or an opponent of mine last year. Now I get him or her for a year or two, and then that coach moves on. So it's clearly that being a tennis coach, uh, it's not like in my day where where a, a coach would travel with me because I he coached me since I was 12, and then he took me through the professional ranks till I was number one in the world, and then he never coached again on the professional tour. I mean, that's the way it used to be. That's the way it was with Günther Busch, who was Boris Becker's coach in, in those days. And, of course, Boris eventually went with Nick Boletieri as well. So it's starting to happen in tennis that the coaches are sharing their knowledge, uh, which I think is better for the game. And, and I always thought that for players individually, it would be better for them to work with the same coach for a longer time. But for the game itself, I think it's better that these coaches go out and they help player A, player B, player C, and they move around a little bit. Because again, what are we looking at? We are only worried about the game improving with every generation in terms of etiquette, professionally, in terms of athleticism, and then in the end, of course, in terms of uh, uh, bodily health for mind and, and physical, uh, physical health. I think that's the bottom line. But I think coaches, you're on the right path, Fernando, and I think they are. It's been a long time coming, but I do think there's a lot of knowledge that is not shared out there uh, from a lot of coaches that are stuck like they are uh, prisoners of their uh, bosses, which are their players, basically. I, I really think that, like I say, you know, coaches have to take care of coaches. I think uh, we, we have to take full responsibility. How do you develop our own work, like profession? And of course, talking about players, that's why I used to say to the coaches, don't blame players, don't blame federation, don't blame organization. The, this is the easy way, you know. If we cannot make a contract with the player, it's our own responsibility. We have to change that. It's not right away. This is not a question that we, can, we, will, we will resolve, I don't know, probably in 10 years. But sometimes we have to start to discuss this at least. You know? Mats, if you were to go back in time a bit and go back to when you were on tour with Murat Safin, and clearly, as you admitted, a great talent, but in some ways you had your hands full with him. He was, he was, he was a load, Murat Saf, and there were a lot of things that he could have done as a player, but if you were to go back in time knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently with him based on the knowledge that you've incurred in, in 20 years? Um, not really. Yeah, I would most probably have said that, listen, Murat, you need to travel with a physical trainer, 
I think that's something that we didn't already. This is in 2001, and it's changed a lot since then. I'm not sure. I think that in general, I think that we, we kind of need better normal coaching from the kids nine, 10 years old, and then it's consistent all the way through. And I don't believe you should have to send a kid to a tennis academy in Spain if you come from Moscow, Russia, or if you come from somewhere else. I think you can learn how to play tennis uh, at home in your club. In fact, I think those players are the ones that very often uh, make it on, on the Pro Tour because they are more settled. And I, that's why I think it's really important to bridge the gap between between the absolute best coaches in the world or the ones that are, are helping the best players in the world and the coach that is helping the six, seven-year-old because the, the gap there is too big. They have no idea what, what they need to teach these kids. And I agree with you, Fernando. It is not forehands and backhands. Technique is not where it lies. It's more about how you practice, um, how do you train a kid that's six, seven, eight years old? What do you tell them that they then can use when they turn professional? And seriously, if I was coaching, I would go back and say, well, don't miss because Novak Djokovic doesn't miss, period. Why is he the best player of all time, maybe? Because he doesn't miss. And I think that we get carried away in the, in the lower level in clubs, and I'm talking about your level too, Andy, it has to be fun for the kid. Fun has taken over the whole sports uh, environment in the world. Oh, but my kid doesn't enjoy it. I mean, school is not fun. Sports is not there to be fun. Sports is there because it's healthy. And it's a necessity for people's well-being. And it's a necessity to become a great player, to teach them that if you make mistakes on the court, you are not winning Grand Slam tournaments. We don't care if you turn pro, but this is going to help you. And this is going to be possible for you to turn pro. School is like that. Why isn't sports like that? I, I can never figure that out. And tennis is definitely not like that. There's too big a gap. It's the World Tennis Conference. Brought to you by the Global Professional Tennis Coaches Association. And before we let you go, Fernando, I just want to read some of these names. You've got 58 percenters, so I'm not going to read them all. But uh, you've got the likes of Tony Nadal, Yvonne Lubitschik, who spent a lot of time with Roger Federer. You've got Nicholas Massou, who's done great work both as a player and on the tour. Janko Tipsarevic, uh, who's a very, very animated, intriguing guy that I know people are going to enjoy. You've got Wolfgang Team. Nick Boliteri, Andres Gomez. Uh, it's a very illustrious list. Yourself, Mark Leslie, who's the CEO of, of UTR, I see is on the list as well. Um, there's all kinds of great presenters. Andre Medvedev is on this list. JL Dieger, great doubles player in his own right and a great doubles coach. How do people get on board with the app and get, get involved with the conference? Talk about that before we go. You can go to Tennis One and you can um, buy a ticket. And also you can go to the, the webpage of the World Tennis Conference. Either way, you can buy a ticket. But one thing which is very important, even you are missing that those days, you, everyone who, has, who is in the, on the conference is allowed to watch every presentation. And you can jump for one presentation and the, because you have all the day and you can watch the videos from the first one to the last one and you can create your own program. You don't need to follow the program. You can follow the program, but you can jump the presentation. If Let's say, first day, 
starting with Tony Nadal, closing with Boris Becker. If you want to watch Tony Nadal first, and secondly, Boris Becker, you can do it. And then he's coming, Andrei Medvedev, it's coming, Tipsarevich, it's coming the, the same day. You know, it's only one day. Every day is a conference by itself. They can buy on the ticket on Tennis One, and they can buy in our, in our conference. He's Fernando Segal. He is the founder and organizer and director of the World Tennis Conference, which takes place uh, March 25th through 28th. And as Fernando just explained, you can watch it on demand and you can customize your own program with an array of speakers, the likes of which I've never seen at any one particular conference. So again, uh, congratulations, uh, Maps. Thank you very much for your insights. As always, when we come back for more kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, We'll be joined by our favorite Texas Longhorn, Johnny Levine. But in the meantime, Fernando Segal, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on kickserveradio.com. And thank you for everything that you're doing for the sport of tennis. It's very important work, and we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Mats. Thank you, Andy. You you were great, like always. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There are so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why SquadPod? SquadPod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the tuchus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids, being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Thank you, Fernando Sergal, for joining us and talking all about the World Tennis Conference, which will be taking place uh, this coming weekend. And I want to thank Sandy Middleman, a tennis pro from West Palm Beach, for connecting us with Fernando. I want to wish them a lot of luck with what sounds like an amazing event for the sport of tennis. Now, guys, let's move on. And we are now joined by two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine, who is part of the kickserveradio.com team. Of course, Matt's Vlander back with us. And fellas, let's start with an incredible story. It started in Australia. It is Aslan Karatsev, 
Matt Spielander, the guy qualifies for his first ever main draw of a major, gets to the semifinals. Is it legit? Is it a fluke? Well, clearly it's no fluke. The guy goes out, wins Dubai. What is going on with a 27-year-old who is suddenly out of the blue making a bid to be potentially a top 20, if not top 10 player in the world? Yeah, I mean, amazing. Um, I think he was really helped by being part of the Russian ATP Cup team with uh, Andrei Rublev, uh, Daniel Medvedev as part of that team. And I think that could have helped him. Surely he got some good practice. But uh, yeah, is it a fluke? Maybe. But what is not a fluke is that in 2020, uh, he played a couple of uh, ATP Tour level matches. And in 2020, uh, he out of the top 50 players in the world, hit on average the hardest forehand. And out of the top 50 players in the world, he hit on average the second hardest backhand. So to me, that tells me that this guy is an unbelievable ball striker and he just hasn't been able to hit the court before. And I don't know what the reason for that is. Has he found uh, um, the string tension, a different racket. I mean, why is he suddenly hitting the court? I have no idea. But clearly, he's a great ball striker because you don't get those kind of speeds off of both sides unless you hit the middle of the racket. And that's what it looks like when he's playing. Uh, I mean, he was dominating um, in Australia, even in that semis uh, that he lost, he was still dominating. So I think that he um, is there to stay be interesting to see, though, when next year comes around and now we start defending points. That's always interesting to see, especially when it gets to Australian Open. When you talk, and before I get to you, Johnny, I want to ask you one more point to that, Matt, is that it, it sounds to me like a golfer who is an incredibly long hitter, but does that mean that suddenly this guy is going to be shooting low scores just because his driving distance is greater than some of the the best players on the tour he hits his irons longer and he's got just just greater ball striking ability does that make a world-class level golfer yeah yeah exactly I mean we know that we've we've covered tennis for so long that that often there is in a five-set match there's a difference of maybe 10, 15, 20 points maximum. And I think suddenly he's just winning the right points. I mean, he's winning the points at 15, 30 down in his serve. Uh, He's breaking when he has a break chance. I mean, uh, I think that's the big difference. So why is he winning those points, the big points? Because of confidence. Um, And again, where where has he been? I don't think that anyone has really dug up exactly what he's been doing for the last three or four years. But... But again, I think he's there to stay. He doesn't win a lot of free points on the serve. So that's not a huge weapon. So he moves well. He seems to have a great attitude. Um, again, I like to see when the pressure is on because he's now a target, not just um, uh, amongst us, the fans, but even in the locker room right now. The guys are like, whoa, whoa, hold on. It's not that easy. So uh, I think he's a, a breath of fresh air because he hits the ball so clean and so hard off of both sides. Johnny, you know, we've seen it from Jen Brady. She makes a run out to the finals of the Australian and suddenly she faces the burden of expectation and doesn't do particularly well uh, to follow that up, whereas Karatsev did. When you were out on the tour, I think there were times when you felt that kind of pressure 
coming out of college and being one of the best players in the country in college tennis. And when you first went out and started playing professional tennis, talk about what was going on in your mind that, that, that helped you and hurt you with regard to where those expectations were and, and obviously trying to live up to them. Well, I think Matt's made a great point and we don't really know for sure, but, but it's obvious that the ATP cup helped him. We think because he was playing with Medvedev, he was playing with Rublev. And when you go out on the tour and some of the guys that you competed with, let's say for myself in college and juniors, uh, more so in college, when you head to the pros, if you're intimidated and, and, and you don't believe you can win, but, and then all of a sudden the guys that, that you've competed with that are your, your, you know, your compatriots are seeing them win big matches, went, get, do well in the pros. That's instant confidence that you think you can do it too, because you've beaten those guys. And so it, it, it very well could be that being with Medvedev and Rublev and playing with them in that competition and, and obviously, you know, maybe beating them in practice and seeing how, you know, that he could play with them could have been what, what sparked him. Um, you know, he had played eight grand slam qualifying, had never qualified for a main draw. He qualifies for the Australian Open, gets to the semifinals. And like you said, I mean, the real proof is he comes back and he wins the tournament in Dubai by beating Sinner and by beating Rublev, you know, the guy that, that has basically been top 10 for the last year. But he knows he can beat him because he's played with him. He plays with him all the time. And, and, and there it is. I mean, that was a huge win for him. And then he destroys, um, you know, Lloyd Harris in the final. He'd been playing great tennis, three and two. So, you know, this guy is definitely for real. I mean, he's playing super aggressive. He's got that, those, those weapons on the ground strokes. The forehand is huge. And now he's got the confidence. He believes he can do it. He's done it. So I do think he's here to stay. It's, it's pretty, very, very impressive what he's done. I mean, he was outside of 250 in August. That was what his ranking is. And now he's 27 in the world. So it, it's the biggest story in, in tennis right now, I think. Let's talk about the biggest story in tennis 40 years ago, which was when Mats Wielander wins the French Open at age 17 in 1982. Compare and contrast a little bit, Mats, the feeling going on in your mind coming off of a French Open win at 17 and what you experienced as a result of that versus what you experienced coming off of a U.S. Open win in 1988, six years later, you would think you would respond better as a more mature tour veteran in 1988 than you did in 1982, but maybe that wasn't the case. No, I think I was just going to sort of bring that up because I think what's interesting, and I've always I, I said that about anybody, I said, I don't care in what world you play in. It could be the under 12 world. It could be under 14. It could be on the, on the future circuit. It could be on the challenge circuit. Uh, and if you win everything in your category or your age group, uh, you come out of there with a lot of confidence. And then the great players, they seem to just enter into a different category uh, and they automatically are not in intimidated but they bring that confidence with them and I think you see that uh, on the PGA Tour when guys come from the Challenge Tour and they they know how to win they always say and they come onto the PGA Tour and there it is they know how to win tennis hasn't really been like that in the past but I think it's happening more and more because guys are are and women they're hitting the ball so clean and so good so if you have a couple of good weeks you can get your ranking up the thing about Aslan Karatsev it doesn't it's it hasn't stopped 
I mean, if he was done after the Australian Open and maybe another good time, no. I mean, we're, what, three weeks after the Australian Open and he's playing as good now, even better. So I, uh, I think that when I won the French Open, back to your question, Andy, at 17, it was more, uh, I was still playing in the juniors, I felt, because uh, I won the juniors in 1981 as a 16-year-old turning 17. And then I won the French. And I still felt like, uh, so it wasn't the French Open that made me realize I could play with these guys. It was actually indoors against John McEnroe in uh, St. Louis in the Davis Cup quarterfinals. And I lost in five sets. But, wow, I'm playing John McEnroe on a fast court. And I took that confidence and I just sort of, okay, here I am. I'm in this category now. After 1988, I actually lost confidence because I am uh, too much of a thinker on the court. So I realized, whoa, 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 I'm supposed to be number one in the world with this forehand, with the power of my first serve. And I started thinking about, am I good enough? Uh, And that never entered my mind before. And as soon as I started thinking, am I good enough? Clearly, I realized, no, I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as Boris Becker. I'm not as good as Ivan Lendl. I'm not as good as Stefan Edberg. I just happened to win for a while, but I think they overpowered me and my thoughts of how to survive. And of course, Agassi came, Pete Sampras. So I wasn't good at taking my game, being number one in the world and actually entering that world of I'm the best player in the world. Let me defend that. I couldn't do that. But I think that's what Karatsev has done. Once he starts losing little bit that's going to be interesting to see how he reacts then but I mean it's becoming more like the PGA Tour I think guys are hitting it harder and they're serving bigger and if they have a good week they can literally take out anyone can you imagine Matt Lander, seven-time Grand Slam champion saying that he at some point in his career didn't think he was good enough to be where he was at I'd like to know if there Matt do you think there's any other former world number one that might feel that way that you that in in our era um oh i think there were some that maybe didn't win as much i think somebody like gustavo querton right but i know but you had seven that's a lot of slams yeah yeah exactly that's a big difference but it was a tourist it was the last one i won and i became number one i think i most probably would have done uh, better, Johnny, if I became number one earlier in my career, I actually could have become number one in 1983, but it didn't happen. And if the number is not next to your name, then you're not number one. I, I might have felt like I was close. I won nine tournaments, but I didn't. Suddenly now I had the number one next to my name. And I felt like I had the best year uh, in the world in 1988, winning three majors. But a week after the U.S. Open, I knew I wasn't the best player in the world anymore. Uh, and, um, you know, sometimes it's not a good thing when you overthink the situation, which is exactly what I did my whole career. Some of it worked, and then it came back and, and bit me in the butt at the end of my career. Let's face it, Johnny. When Matt became number one in the world, it was at the ripe old age of 23. And so his best days were clearly behind him. And now he's old enough to really understand what the hell he's doing out there, whereas when he was winning those seven majors, he had no clue that he wasn't supposed to win him. And then finally, suddenly he woke up one day and realized, my God, what have I done? And it was too late. He'd already won them. Exactly. So I, I guess my question to you, Johnny, is 
do you think that all of these guys on the tour now that never became number one are just a hell of a lot smarter than Matt's because they realize that they can't beat Djokovic. They realize they can't beat Federer and they realize that they can't beat Nadal. So the guys, the Joe Willie Songas and the David Ferrer's and, and, and now the, you know, the guys that have come up behind them and Grigor Dimitrov and, and Zverev and all of these guys, they just, they're just smart enough to realize that they're not as good as the top guys. Matt's never got that. I'd rather be in Matt's position with the seven slams and thinking I shouldn't be number one. <laughs> you you had a lot of self-doubt too. So as Matt's is describing himself, I saw that in you. I saw both sides of you. I saw the guy at UT that refused to lose to David Pate and refused to lose to Rodney Harmon and refused to lose to a lot of guys uh, that many other college players had absolutely no qualms with losing to. But on our home courts, particularly in Austin, you would have no part of losing to guys like that. But then when you got on the tour, maybe that's when the self-doubt crept in. But when you were a Texas Longhorn, you were fire-breathing confidence in those years. The biggest thing for young guys that have a lot of success in college tennis going into the pros, I'm convinced that it's all about how you handle the week-to-week losing because most top college players are in the 90 to 95% winning percentage in college, throughout college. So you go into the pros and you're basically, you know, as far as winning tournaments, you're you're at 0% because you're not going to win tournaments at least not on the ATP level. And so it's, it's the guys that, that, that are taught by their coaches and understand that every week is a new week and that what happened last week is over with. You're so in tennis, you're fortunate that every Monday is a new opportunity. And if you drag the, the, the previous results into those next weeks, that's when you get killed with confidence and it really hurts your chances. And so for me, it, it beat up my confidence. And instead of looking at every week being an opportunity and moving and, and feeling good about the, uh, the next week and not worrying about what happened prior, that's where I lacked and, and, and it hurt me. And I, you know, I've heard guys today, the young Americans, I've heard some of them in interviews say that that's the biggest thing is getting used to un- knowing how to lose every week is the biggest thing because they're so used to winning. And if they can overcome that, and learn from the losses and, and get it out of their mind afterwards, they have a chance because they're great players. So, and, and then it helps, you know, not let the confidence beat you down. So much easier said than done. It brings us back to Oslan Karatsev and how much more improbable his journey seems. All right. When we come back, guys, there's more to talk about. Andy Murray made some interesting comments and Benoit Pair. Oh my goodness. Did he shake things up a little bit this week? When we come back, we'll talk about those things. You're not going to want to miss that. Certainly not. You're not going to want to miss Matt Spielander's comments on what Benoit Pair had to say. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we got a lot more good stuff right after this. So do not go away. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area, 
They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Andy Zoden with Matt Svilander and Johnny Levine. And guys, um, Benoit Pair is a guy that, for, for whatever reason, he, he's, he's volatile. He's a lot of things that when you see it or you hear it from Nick Curios, it makes you stop on that television station. Whereas for me, when it's Benoit Pair, I just keep going to the next channel. I don't know why. But for whatever reason, I, I, I don't care about watching him play tennis. But these comments that he made after a match with, uh, with the young uh, Francisco Serendulo over in uh, Argentina in the Buenos Aires Open, I believe it was around a 16 match. He didn't like a line call. He had a typical pair meltdown, um, tanked the end of the match, went in and made these comments. He said that the ATP circuit is becoming sad, boring and ridiculous and is talking about how there's just no fun left for these guys they they don't play in front of crowds they're quarantined and for him as he's made this point pretty clear it's more about the fun of the traveling than the professionalism of the competition but I ask you this Matt Vlander is it possible that there's some truth to the fact that the tour is a tough place to exist right now. I mean, I think you got to listen to what Ben Rapper is saying. And, and I mean, is he right? Yeah, certain things is right. It's not that much fun to play without a crowd, especially if you don't have that within you drive to keep improving every time you go on court. Every week's going to be better than the previous week. And I'm, I'm not satisfied with being 29 in the world, which is where where he was, I want to get to top 20 and I'm going to get to top 10 or whatever. But I think there's a lot of players on tour that they don't really have those goals. Uh, they have goals of winning the match that they're involved in that week. But I don't think they have long-term goals. And I think Benoit Pair is one of those. Uh, I think with Benoit Pair, obviously this is not the first time that it's happened. But he really is one of the most talented players on tour, together with Nick Curios and t- together with uh, Fabio Fognini, or hold on a second, maybe not. Maybe they're not that talented, but maybe we think they are because they don't always give 100%. And we keep saying, well, if he just gave 100%, he's so talented and he could win more. Are they all three afraid of putting goals up that they cannot achieve? Because, I mean, Nick Curious is a perfect example of very talented yeah, how talented is he when he gets into a close match or five sets or whatever? Is he? Because he's not winning most of them. 
Um, Fabio Fernini has done unbelievably well for a guy that didn't always try um, 100% all the time. But he's actually learned and he's come around. I'm a big Fabio Fognini fan these days. And Benoit Pair, I mean, I like watching him when he's on fire. He's got amazing backhand. And I think that he's a character. We always say that. We, we lack characters in the, in the sport of tennis. Yes, but we don't want to see players not trying. And that's why I lose respect for, for uh, uh, that Benoit Pair uh, and Nick Hures. When they don't try... That's so disrespectful, not to the game, but to the world, to people that don't have it as easy as professional tennis players do. Um, but he was okay with that. He said, I know what you're going to say. I'm complaining, and you're all going to say that I'm lucky to play tennis. It's not easy to get fired up when no one's watching if your goal is to entertain. It gets back to the question, Johnny, that I asked Roger Federer at Indian Wells in a press conference, and he didn't. He didn't seem to care for the question, but I, I think that uh, episodes like this give credence to the question, which is that when Roger and Rafa and Novak ride off into the sunset, will there be a popularity void in the sport? Because people are not going to be drawn into the sport by guys like Benoit Pair and Nick Kyrgios saying the things that they say and doing the things that they do. Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, those guys are superheroes in the history of the sport. And when those guys are gone, um, what are we going to have left? That's a great, great point, Andy. And I think the struggle, at least in the United States where we are, um, is that without Federer and Nadal, I mean, even Djokovic, there's a lot of people that that are not familiar with that name. It, it, you know, I mean, unless you really know tennis, the average person who loves sports, I don't think knows the name Djokovic. Um, it, and it's sad. And so when you talk about the loss of Nadal and Federer, unless, it, it, at least in the U S if you don't have a, an American in that top 10, that's vying for slams, I think we're in trouble. I mean, Matt's might disagree, but I just, I, I don't, I think, I think tennis is is uh, is in a little bit of trouble. Well, let's talk about that, Matt, because is it an indictment of the sport, what Johnny's referring to, or is it an indictment of the lack of cultural broadness of the American sports fan to be able to take in a sport as mainstream as tennis if it doesn't have American players, as Johnny said, vying for slams? Is that is that our problem and not the sports problem? I think it's the sports problem. I really do. I don't think that we see uh, public tennis courts being being filled up anymore. It used to be like that, at least in Sweden. I've heard that in America it was, it was more like that. I played against a lot of pros in the 80s. And, of course, Johnny and Andy, you would know this. But a lot of them grew up on public courts and, uh, and they did not come from, from – completely fortunate homes of course they played in college in those days but I don't think that's happening anymore so I think that it's it's a it's a mainstream sports on tv and in terms of the biggest names but I don't know if the fan base is as big now as it was before because it was on and it was interesting we had David Agdes from the tennis channel a, a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, Andy, and uh, and we talked about that, that now if you're a tennis fan, you can find tennis on the tennis channel, but you're not going to run into tennis 
on the biggest channels unless you're really looking for it. So I don't know right. if we're going to have uh, uh, people watching tennis and say, oh, that looks like a good sport. I like to try it. We don't have that anymore in tennis. And I think that's, that's dangerous. Now, what Benoit Paire is saying that I would like to go back to, what is going on on the ATP Tour that we know is different? At the Australian Open, we had no line empires. So we have, that means there's no challenge system. So we have a Hawkeye. Now you've taken away the argument that the player might have with the umpire. Now you've taken away the crowd's interest in close calls because there is no challenge system. Is it going to challenge? Is it in? Is it out? I mean, the ooh, that was invented because of the challenge system. I don't like it, to be honest. Tennis lacks theater is what it sounds like to me. And that is what the sport made so much progress with back in the day when you had McEnroe and you had Connors and then you had contrasting styles like Bjorn Borg, like yourself and the rest of the Swedes. So you had very different cultures bringing very different presentations to the tennis court and it made for great theater. And we don't have as much of that anymore. No question. One of the guys that was one of the big guys in the sport during the past 15 years is Andy Murray. And he's obviously had his issues with, hip surgery and knees and all kinds of injury issues, gone through different coaching situations and emotional situations. And suddenly, Mats Vilander, he is saying, I can win Wimbledon this year. You you took him to task last year, and you, you, you pay the price a little bit in the court of public opinion for those comments after a lackluster performance uh, at the French Open. Andy Murray says he can win Wimbledon this year. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, yes. I Do I agree that I think he can win Wimbledon this year? Mm, most probably not. But he played Stan Wawrinka in the first round of the French Open, and he clearly went out and said, I can't even win a set against Stan Wawrinka on the Philippe Chatrier clay court. And that's, that's what I saw, and it was exactly what happened. And now he's got some confidence. He's played some challenges. He made one finals. Uh, he's winning some matches. And, uh, and I think that, can he win Wimbledon? He's won it a couple of times. Um, I think he's seeing Roger Federer getting older. Rafa Nadal is getting a little older. Novak is maybe not quite as good as he was before. Yeah, why wouldn't he think that? But I actually think that that's what I was hoping for. Show me that you still believe. And if you don't, bluff your way through some matches. And maybe this is a bluff. I don't know. But if he thinks he can win Wimbledon, I am sure pulling for him because I think that's what he has been missing uh, in the last few years. I know he's battling uh, his comeback and his injuries, but I think he's battling his emotional state. The, the need to win tennis matches has to become uh, a very strong again. We all want to win. Everybody wants to win. But there's some people in the world that need to win. Uh, it's, a, it's an addiction, and they need that adrenaline, whatever you call it. And Andy Murray used to have it, and uh, I think he sounds like he, he's getting it back. So good luck, Andy. I am rooting for Andy Murray, Andy. All right, Johnny, so we're doing a Zoom, and, and the people that are listening to our show don't have the pleasure and the benefit that I do of watching your wry little smile while Matt's is talking about Andy Murray. It was almost on the verge of laughter. So what was going through your mind as Matt's was talking about 
Andy Murray's comments, knowing that you know what Matt Vlander said about Andy Murray, and now he's talking about him again. What, what was going through your mind during all of that? Well, no, I just I thought it was interesting <laughs> uh, how I like I, I like uh, Matt's candor about what happened at the French, and you know he said it like it was. He just didn't think he showed up, and and uh, and Matt's commented on it, and I guess Andy. Murray wasn't that pleased with it, but I think that the players, you know, always have to respect the honesty of, of the commentators, whether it's tennis or basketball. I know that, you know, the, the great TNT show um, with, with Barkley and, and, Sha- and Shaq, which, you know, the players, they talk about it, you know, they get pissed at them when they don't like what they say about them. But, but as Barkley says, he's going to be honest and, you, you know, he's not going to, be nicer to a guy that he's closer with. He, he says it like it is. So I just appreciate Matt's for doing that. And, um, and, and, and now he, you know, he comes out with the comment Murray that, that he thinks he can win Wimbledon and Matt's is honest again, which I think is great. He doesn't think he will, but he's rooting for him because he likes his confidence. So I just, I just thought it was pretty interesting. I liked it. Very good. All right. Let's, let's, let's close out with this fellas, the Miami open. We're excited that it's happening, but we're starting to become more and more concerned like the rest of the tennis world is at all of the players that are withdrawing for various reasons. I believe Djokovic has pulled out because of COVID restrictions. We talked about Serena Williams. Let's start with her, Matt, because uh, oral surgery, something to do with uh, some, some sort of a procedure. So she's the only what she's the only woman in the uh, on the WTA tour in the top 10 that won't be at the Miami open your thoughts on the tournament itself. And then the fact that people are, are pulling out. Well, that's obviously a big blow to, to the tournament and the fans. That's obvious, but I think it's a bigger blow to Serena Williams. I mean, I know that she, uh, I believe at least she had shares in the Miami dolphins for a while. I mean, she spends a lot of time in Miami. I mean, I think she would even call herself a Floridian these days, even though she grew up in, in uh, California, I think that she uh, needs matches and I think that she would be comfortable playing in Miami. And, and I know the next major is the, is the French Open. It's on clay. I don't think that matters. I think that this is a big blow to her uh, tennis, her confidence. She doesn't get the chance to train to get ready for Miami. I don't think she needs to win tournaments uh, to, to, to get that 24 slam. But she needs to win matches. And she needs to be in the, in the mindset of a... Uh, of an everyday working tennis pro, and there is uh, there is no yesterday, there's no tomorrow, it's just today, and I'm going full out uh, all day as long as I can, and I think all these stops and goes is not good for her. She's at at her age, uh, and the way she's playing, I think she needs to to be out there, and she needs to really put the foot on the pedal if she's going to win that 24th, because she has to improve. We mustn't forget that. It's not enough to play like Serena Williams did 12, 10 years ago. She has to improve because Naomi Osaka is as good now as Serena was when Serena was at her best. So somehow Serena has to improve and it doesn't happen um, if you go to the dentist. If these players, Johnny, are going to play their best and if they're going to be at their most confident, they got to play a lot of matches. In the case of a guy like yourself, who is a potential tournament owner and director like you were with the Arizona Tennis Classic in 2019, and your debut tournament was an enormous success on the ATP Challenger Tour with Matteo Berrettini winning it. 
with Jamie Murray teaming with Neil Skupski to win the doubles. I mean, a bona fide tour level event at the Phoenix Country Club. You need to not be obviously playing matches like you used to, but you need to be seeing a lot of matches being played to get your confidence back to be able to run another tournament. And I know that as these, you know, 2020 is gone and 2021 is evolving, you've got to be continually evolving with it in terms of your mindset toward wanting to do that tournament again. Where are you right now? I have been thinking about it a little bit. If it's the opportunity exists, I could see looking at it for 2022 if it's available. I like the week that it, that we had it. Um, with the right amount of time to plan, I, I could see having it next year. I think it would be a great opportunity. I always like to provide the opportunities for the players. You know, I'm a little biased. I like to see the Americans have, you know, chances to play. We promote, you know, getting some opportunities for some of the young guys, some young Americans, but because we're in, in between, you know, Indian Wells and Miami, we get a lot of the European guys, a lot of top-ranked guys. So with the mix of young and, and, and old and some guys coming back, it makes for a great, great event during that time of year. So I'd love to see it happen again, and, and it's definitely possible. I'm Andy Zoden for Johnny Levine, former world number one of Matt's V-Lander. You've been listening to KickServeRadio.com, and we are so proud – to be a part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And hopefully you guys are absolutely ODing on Tennis Channel these days because there's so much great coverage. We want to thank Fernando Segal for joining us earlier in the show. And we'll be back with more great guests throughout the balance of 2021 because we know you guys want it and we're going to have it for you. So we'll see you soon on kickserveradio.com. <laughs>